Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of All Out War. I am Turner, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for everybody who has uh, listened to us through the years and who has supported us as a podcast. Uh, it means the world to me, and uh, I just wanted to take a second and say thank you once again for uh, all of the wonderful feedback and support and, uh, and just uh, the listening audience that, um, that we've had over the last couple of years. Uh, we have a great episode for you today. Uh, we focus on three main areas in this podcast, and it is it is theology, politics, and culture. And this is a, po- a politics one. And I want to try and break us from the paradigm of left-right paradigm that uh, we've always thought of and think of some new terms and some new ways of what I believe is going to be uh, happening in America at some point. I believe it's inevitable and uh, this topic is called, uh, it's, we have a guest named Mr. Jeffersonian, and he is uh, what I would consider to be someone who's an authority on the topic of state secession. And I know that sounds weird, but, um, you know, many times on this podcast, we've covered topics um, ahead of time, and they end up being very relevant this is one of those things where I just have a sense that this topic and this idea of state secessionism is actually going to gain traction. And I think it's going to be motivated through some of the stuff that we're facing in our culture today, in particular with some of our overreaching uh, mandates from our president and uh, the way that the federal government is continuing to just like an octopus wrap its tentacles around uh, the daily lives of, of the people who live here in our country. And so this is a relevant podcast in that regard, and I just want to encourage you to listen to it, follow up. There's lots of links in the show notes that we're going to include with this podcast, and and uh, and we hope that uh, it really forms a, a a new idea that maybe you haven't been thinking through, and uh, or maybe I'm just getting on the on the board or on the on the wagon with it, and maybe you've been thinking about this for a while. So either way, I hope you enjoy it. So uh, do me a favor, just sit back, grab a coffee and enjoy. You're listening to the All Out War Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of All Out War. This is Turner. I have an amazing guest with me tonight on the podcast. It's uh, it's somebody that uh, I discovered through a, a, a string of podcasts as a guest, and I'm so glad I did. I have joining us in the studio tonight, Mr. Jeffersonian. Mr. Jeffersonian, I want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, Turner, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm glad that a uh, strange twist of fate brought me to you, and uh, here we are now getting to have a face-to-face conversation, so I appreciate that. Yeah, well, so I wanted to talk about something that you have uh, really helped me understand greatly as I listen to your podcast, and, and I want to encourage our listeners to go check out The Jeffersonian Tradition. It's a podcast that he does, uh, I think you do it pretty much weekly, um, at least once a week I know of. And, uh, and one of the topics that he's been touching on and really helped move me towards was this topic of secession, state secession in particular. And with everything that's going on with COVID and the unbelievable 
um, overreach, in my opinion, of the federal government and then these out-of-control governors and other health officials and all, it seems inevitable to me that at some point we're going to end up with a, a America that is literally not just red and blue, but literally it's like <laughs> it's like they're pushing from vaxxed and unvaxxed. We have two Americas, and it's getting harder and harder to coexist. And so the whole idea of state secessionism and this concept was foreign to me, but when I listened to you explain it, it truly helped me say, hey, this actually may not be a bad idea, and I think it's something that was made provisional in the Constitution by our founding fathers. So I was going to ask you to kind of elaborate on that. Yeah, most definitely. So um, just real quick before we get too into the weeds on this. So with secession, I view it as inevitable, right? And you, and Turner, you've probably heard me say this because I've, I've been saying it for a while now. I think it's going to happen one of three ways, peacefully, which would obviously be the preferred route through force of arms or as a result of an imperial implosion. So if we have a mm-hmm. currency collapse or something like that, um, basically kind of like a Soviet Union style breakup in, in that scenario. So at this point, I think it's inevitable. And, and to your point, yes, uh, we are becoming a vastly, vastly uh, schismed culture, I guess you could, you could say. <laughs> so it's getting to be pretty bad uh, because everything is politicized. Everything is politicized and everything has to flow from the top down in D.C. So I just kind of want to set the stage on why I'm pushing so hard for it. But yes, now we can definitely get into the weeds a little bit. So uh, you had asked me kind of offline, why is state secession not a bad idea or why is it a good idea? So I'm going to answer that question with a question. Are you tired of being angry? <laughs> yes, and I probably speak for a majority of our listeners. Yes, we're very tired of anger. Okay, so in a nutshell, that is exactly why secession is not a bad idea. And again, we have real cultural differences within the states. What New Yorkers want is nowhere near the same as what people out here. I'm in Colorado, so that's nowhere near the same what Coloradans want or what North Dakotans want. I think you're in Virginia. Um, Unfortunately, Northern Virginia has kind of gone that way, but Mm. who knows? Maybe geographically, most of Virginia still doesn't necessarily want the same thing that that New Yorkers want. So when you have a context like that or when you have a situation like that, forcing away a life on everyone from the top down just really pisses people off. I, I mean, how, how many times do you look at the headlines and think, oh, my Lord, like, what now? You know, and that's, that's the thing is everybody feels that way because you have people on the opposite side of the spectrum who think right now there was actually a New York Times article where they think that the Supreme Court right now is on a right wing just going completely off the rails on a, on a right wing uh, power flex. And I just don't, I mean, I don't think that could be further from the truth, honestly. (laughs) But, you know, we'll we'll talk about that, too, as we get into judicial uh, incorporation. But even aside from the headlines, think about the meltdowns that we saw when Trump won in 2016. I mean, people were freaking out. The Calexit movement went from about 10,000 people up to about 250,000 people. And likewise, we also saw a lot of anger when Biden, you know, air quotes, won in 2020. So it's because many people view it as completely normal to use the general government to force their views on the other half of the country as long as their team is the one in charge. That that's the problem is because when people get into D.C., they say, "Okay, I'm team Democrat or team Republican. Now that my team is in charge, I'm going to use my team to force my way of life on you in rural North Dakota. 
and that that's not okay. And I mean, even if by some happenstance, even if North Dakota came to prominence, it's not okay for North Dakota to turn around and do the same thing to California. Right. So what secession does is it gives everyone a chance to have their states operate the way that they want to without interference from the Leviathan in D.C. And that is why I believe that state secession is a good and desirable goal. Man, it's so true. And I think the way you put that is perfect. So for somebody who's who hasn't really thought of this or even, you know, I know, I know some of the attitude that used to be in this concept would be someone say, oh, after the election, oh, well, we're going to just secede. That's, we need to secede. We can't handle this. And it's always almost like a sour loser mentality, or I'm going to take my dollies and leave because you're not playing the way I like, or I didn't win when it's nothing like that at all. I know that's the attitude that I used to get, you know, about it or feel about it when it was brought up. Um, How do you, so how like how does it fundamentally work? If say say for instance uh, Texas wanted to secede, which could probably happen someday. I'm thinking they're probably closer than a lot of other states. How would that look for them in relationship to once they break apart from the federal government? Like, are they going to have to create an, a military force for themselves? Are they going to have to like? Is it going to be a ground up like a new country? How does how does that look for a state like that? So I'm glad you asked that because there's actually greatly different ideas on what that would look like. So Marcus Ruiz Evans of the Yes California or the Cal Exit movement, he thinks that if California were to leave, let's just use them as an example, that basically the first generation would have dual citizenship and California would basically lease the uh, U.S. military, kind of like what the European countries do. I don't think that because of history. Um, and I and I actually I don't think that because of what secession actually would entail. So Daniel Miller of, of the Texas movement, he he recognizes Texas is going to be its own country. Like the moment they say we're no longer part of this is the moment they're no longer U.S. citizens. So <laughs> you you have some conflicting ideas with that. Um, now Texas in particular, yes, at, at least in conversations I've had with Daniel, it it seems like they probably would kind of be starting from the ground up in terms of, of military strength and everything else. But the question that we need to ask is, is that really that big of a hurdle? You already have the National Guard. I mean, Texas, I think, has over 20,000 guardsmen. That That's not a small force, you know. Now, granted, is it the three million man military that we have now? No, absolutely not. But the, the question we really need to ask is, does it need to be? And if you have these smaller nation states that come out of this, I, I don't think the answer to that question is yes, unless you're talking about the coastal areas. But even then, you can still have interstate treaties that basically say, hey, if you're attacked, we'll lend some manpower to you. The moment the threat is taken care of, we're going to take our manpower back. And and that's actually another big thing. Have you ever read any of the Brutus essays? No, I haven't. Yeah. Brutus number eight. uh, All of your audience needs to listen to, or excuse me, needs to read that. Um, And I actually did a podcast episode on that particular one. But Brutus number eight, the founding generation was very, very afraid of a standing military. And a lot of people never even stopped to ponder why. And what was crazy is that Brutus actually saw, hey, if we give the general government the power of taxation and raising an army, what's going to keep them from turning that on the state? Hmm. Well, you know, fast forward to 1861 to 1865, that's exactly (laughs) what we saw. So there's a lot of precedent there to be afraid of having a permanent stand in military. But to your point, if Texas were to go, um, again, you have a different idea there. Texas kind of understands like, yes, we're on our own. We're going to be responsible for defense. We're going to be responsible for, excuse me, responsible for this, that, and the other. So 
it could look a lot of different ways. Um, I don't have a concrete answer, but I can tell you what the two main leaders are saying is one is saying, yes, we understand we're on our own. The other is saying, Hey, let's kind of do this European union style and we'll just lease the military that still exists. Wouldn't it be, (laughs) I don't want to slight your buddy in California, but isn't it, isn't it interesting that, um, the more liberal side of things would want to use somebody else's uh, stuff rather than uh, ground up build, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, now, when when I've talked to him, I, I kind of understand what he's what he's saying. And I mean, it, to an extent, it would make sense to do it like that. But you, I think with that, you have to answer more so the question, why would you maintain dual citizenship? Because I, I don't think, especially because the way California is trying to do it, uh, the actual process is they actually want to get the other states to vote them out. So if you have, let's say, a conglomeration of states, a, a two-thirds majority, that would be about 35 states, uh, vote them out, I, I really don't think that they're going to be okay with saying, okay, well, you're still citizens. Like, we just kicked you out, but you're still part of us. Like, I, I just don't think it will work like that. But, you know, I, I could be wrong. I, I would be open to being wrong as long as it happened peacefully, um, whatever. But he, he does only think that it would be the first generation who had that dual citizenship. For, for every new generation born after that, they, they would strictly be citizens of California. Yeah. I actually like that idea. I think that's pretty cool with the dual citizenship uh, first generation because it's going to be necessary at some level for different things. I mean, because until you sort out uh, inheritance laws and, you know, what if I own a house in Nebraska, but I also have a house in California, how am I going to, you know, handle that I own a house in a different country, taxes? Like there's just so many things that you have to kind of, un, un you know, take apart slowly. But um well, not as much as you'd think. So let's say right now, for example, if you own a house in Vermont, but your your permanent residence or your primary residence is in California, if, if you sell the house, you're, you're just going to be subject to the laws of Vermont. I mean, it that could still, at least in my mind, that could functionally still operate the same, even if a state left and, and completely renounced citizenship. Hmm. So that that's what I think. Um, you, you could still go get your passport. That's really not that that big of an inconvenience. I know when I went and got mine, I had to stand in line for about four hours, but Hey, it it was a one day painful process. And then the pain was over for the next 10 years. So not, not really too big of a deal. And, uh, European union countries actually sort of do that. Have you ever been over to Europe? Oh yeah. 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 So, you know, they, they have freedom of movement, like through the EU member States. Now I, I don't even want something like the EU to, take the place of what we have now. I I want something that's truly like everything is is separate, at least as much as they want it to be. And with that, you could still have freedom of movement. Now, granted, would you have checkpoints for people coming in from a different state? Hey, sure. Why not? I I actually, I think it would be a great idea for Texas to vet Californians before letting them in, but (laughs) hey, who I know. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that feel the same way you do. And ironically, Californians probably feel the same way about Texans coming into them. You know, they very well might. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's their prerogative. Yeah, it totally is. What do you think, in your opinion, would be the tipping point that would bring a state to actually really aggressively go after this and, and proclaim it? So for California, I think it's when the next Republican wins, because to them, all Republicans are Trump now. Um, for red mm-hmm. states, that, that's the real kicker. And honestly, I, I don't know. Now, Texas... They, they've already been working on this since, I think, 1995, 1996. Hmm. This has been a long time coming. Uh, Texas is ready to go. The people of Texas, I believe, are, are probably ready to go based on conversations of people or conversations with the people that I've, I've had down there. So 
the other red states, though, I, I just I honestly don't know because there's a lot of financial stuff that that kind of goes into this. And this isn't so much a political problem. It's really more of a of a function of what your population is. But the smaller states tend to get more federal money than they put into the system. Yeah. Now, again, not really a function of left versus right. It's just more of a function of, hey, if you're a smaller state population wise, you're, you're probably going to get more out than you put in. But it just so happens that more of the smaller states tend to be Republican. But if you look at small states like Vermont actually gets more out than it um, than it puts in. So for those red states, they're going to have to get themselves financially independent one way or another. They're going to have to find a way to make up that revenue. Now, I've, I've had conversations with people about this, too. That that could very well mean that your taxes are going to be higher, at least in the short term. Your taxes very well could be higher. But the trade off with that is you have real local control of that tax money, because right. guess what? If your governor's participating in corruption and graft, that's <laughs> way easier to control than a politician in D.C. who may be, you know, 3000 miles away if you're on the opposite coast. Yeah, no, that's man, that is such a great point. When you localize all of those politics, you get much better control and your voice, even even if you set up a similar like write a new constitution or whatever, however you would set it up for the your new nation state, um, you, you still have a much stronger voice with that's with when it's broken up like that. Um, what do you think? Like so when I think about um, go, like, say, for instance, Governor DeSantis out of Florida, you know, he seems to be this guy that, you know, obviously the mainstream media tries to point him as like some kind of renegade or something. But I actually feel like when I watch his response to things that are coming out of D.C., I feel like he's actually giving Florida Florida residences more independence, more freedom, more liberty because he's unwilling. He's just like, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and it, yeah. it blows people's minds. Have you read John C. Calhoun? I know of him. I have not read him. Okay, so this was, uh, I want to say this was his work on the Constitution. So it, it was it was either, yeah, I think it was that one and not, not his work on the concurrent majority. So anyway, he, he's got this book where he basically lays out, and it's kind of like an extended essay, but he basically lays out how the, how the definition of treason would change over time, right? So initially, if you look at the Constitution, treason can only be applied as a charge if you levy war against the United States or one of the states or aid and abet the enemies. Well, Calhoun had the foresight to say almost 200 years ago, eventually this is going to flip. Eventually it's going to be if, if you are loyal to your state instead of to your general government, they're going to come after you. But that, that's like showing the complete different mindset that people had back then. Excuse me. Yeah. So if you had a situation like we do with DeSantis, who should he be governing that state on behalf of? Should it be on behalf of what Joe Biden and his cronies say, or should it be on behalf of the citizens of the state? Right. Now, I firmly believe it should be on behalf of the citizens of the state, but you're already starting to see that. I mean, Ron DeSantis is like the antichrist to the people <laughs> on the other side of the spectrum. They're calling him Death Santis and everything else. And again, I'm afraid, I guess what my biggest concern is, What's the general government going to do as, as Florida continues to resist and as Texas continues to resist, what is the general government going to do? Because they're going to look at that and say, well, you're defined the general government. You're defined the United States. We have a right to invade you now. And I just don't think that's the case. Again, our, our loyalties, first and foremost, if you're religious, should be to God. 
And then politically, your loyalty should first and foremost be to your state. Well, really to your community, but to your state. And forget the general government. It's there for general purposes. That That's why I call it a general government and not the federal government, because that's what the founders called it, general. It was a general government for specified purposes. And so that's kind of my two cents on that. I think DeSantis is doing a wonderful job. Uh, if you have any libertarian listeners out there, I, I am going to poke the bear a little bit, <laughs> get off his back about property rights with these companies who would otherwise try to invade medical privacy because he is doing a great thing by standing up for individual liberty within the state of Florida. Yeah. On that on that topic of libertarianism, help our listeners understand those that aren't familiar too, because this is something, libertarianism kind of surged here a few years ago. And I don't think a lot of people really understood what that meant when they would jump into that. I think they liked some of the concepts because it resonated with them. But when you unpack it fully, it, it isn't really everything that you think it's going to be. Well, even libertarians don't fully understand libertarianism. <laughs> so um, for the audience, if you listen to my show, this is something I'm actually going to be discussing in an upcoming episode. So I used to be the most radical type of libertarian. I would say the most pure, which is called an anarcho-capitalist. So basically I was somebody who believed in political anarchy and then the economic system that would fill it would be capitalism. Now with that, there's a lot of different arguments. Um, honestly, we, we would need probably five or six shows to really hash all of this out. Yeah. But the main philosophical driver or the main influence on anarcho-libertarianism would be Murray Rothbard. And I still have a lot of respect for Murray Rothbard. He wrote a ton of articles, ton of books, a wonderful economist. I mean, he, he pointed out a lot of issues that really do need some sort of an answer better than what we have now. But where it has a tendency to break down, at least in my opinion, is you have people who get so dedicated to the ideology that they're willing to fall on the sword of an ideal that doesn't actually exist. And this is something that I'm going through right now uh, because in the libertarian circles that I still run in, there are people who literally they're coming out against some of the measures that Florida is taking. And especially in terms of forbidding employers to ask for your vaccination status. Now the libertarian position on that, if you're an anarchist would be, you don't have a right to that job. Okay, in theory, yes, you're right. I don't have a right to that job because that's not a negative right. And negative right is something you don't have to do anything for it to exist. So you have a right to not be killed. Essentially, that would be an example of a negative right. And a positive right is something where legislation has to basically give it to you. Mm -hmm. And to that extent, okay, fine. Theoretically, yes, you're right. I don't have a right to that job, at least not a negative right. Any right I have will be a positive right. But... The question that we need to ask and the question that I feel that libertarianism has failed the most at asking is what aspects of our culture do we feel are worth preserving and what are we willing to do to keep it? And another core tenet of libertarianism is what's called the non-aggression principle. So they basically, that can be boiled down to don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Again, in a perfect world, that sounds hunky-dory, but we do not live in a perfect world. And especially with what we've seen with COVID, our enemies, even normal people that may live across the street from you, they are more than willing to resort to state violence to get you to do what they want you to do. And we're seeing that, especially after Joe Mussolini's September 9th edicts. <laughs> that's exactly what we're seeing. They want the private sector to be their enforcers. Yeah, That's fascism. That That is literal Mussolini-style fascism. And so 
where libertarians are failing so hard on this question, at least in my opinion, is that so many of them are still saying, well, it's a private company and you don't have a right to that job. And that, that's, that's not an acceptable way to look at this. We need to be willing to fight. We need to be willing to resist, by, in my opinion, almost any means necessary. I like the states' rights approach because the states have the infrastructure in place to actually take this on. We have a historical precedent on how to do it. If, as libertarians, we just try to take this on, there could be 10 million of us who feel the exact same way. But if we don't have any sort of institutionalized power, yeah. we're nothing. We're going to be swept away. So, But for libertarianism as, a, as an ism, it's a great philosophy in theory. It's just it doesn't really hold up when you try to apply it to the real world because we live in a flawed society. I mean, every human has a flaw, myself included. So that's, in my opinion, where it breaks down. Wonderful in thought, terrible in practice, because yeah. you can't really bring it into practice. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that was great. That's a good way to put it. I, I like that a, a lot. But what do you – I think when I think back on, in particular, the last election – um, you know, you, every election cycle you get, it seems like libertarians come out of the woodwork and then they get so disenfranchised because it still always boils down to a two-party system. It always it always ends up that way. I'm personally convinced that until we break that somehow anyways, like if we stay as one nation, if we don't have secession and we don't have, you know, some really radical change somehow um, – until we do that, we're never going to get changed because it's basically, I heard it said, you know, it's two wings of the same animal, you know. It's still connected at the top. And to a major extent, yes, it is. Now, with, with libertarians, I think if we do see any state secede, and it doesn't necessarily have to be the Libertarian Party, but if we see any state secede, I think we would actually finally start to see a multi-party system come out of that. Um California, I'm going to use them as an example again. So when I was on Marcus's show, uh, I, they actually have like a, a weekly roundtable, and there was this guy who was telling me they're part of the Green Party, and they, they think if California left, hey, maybe the Green Party is going to have a chance to take on the Democrat Party. And even the way that Marcus explained it on my show is it's not necessarily that the people of California are just head over heels in love with the Democratic Party. It's that to them, every Republican is Donald Trump, so – they're just going to take the stance of, well, we got to vote blue no matter who, because that's how we keep the Republicans out. So if they, you know, if they left and that conservative influence wasn't per se really there anymore, then I think you open the doors wide for a three or excuse me, for a multi-party system to kind of take root there. And same thing in Texas, because if Texas yeah. leaves now, granted, Texas has some liberal areas in their big cities. But if Texas were to leave, hey, how many of those rural counties Maybe Libertarian Party does make some inroads there. Maybe they yeah. do actually get some representation at the state level because they know the competition. I, I would love for the argument to be, well, should we be Murray Rothbard or should we be Russell Kirk? I would love for that to be the argument, but it's not. Not not in the current <laughs> state of affairs. So if we break apart, though, you have room for that to flourish. Yeah. Yeah, I man, when you're – a thought just came across my mind. Like I just – um the the last election cycle that happened went through um, when I think there were a lot of Republicans that just became immediately disenfranchised. And I can remember sitting and watching the results, and not only was I surprised, number one, because, uh, you know, it was such a um, – it just seemed to me that it was going to be a slam dunk. Like, I just couldn't believe it. And then, and then to hear um, 
<laughs> to, well, I don't know how to put this without sounding really bizarre, but Fox News was the main conservative mainstream media outlet at that time. And I can remember watching the election coverage and I looked over at my wife and I said, they're gone. They're done. They're no longer conservative because they weren't even trying to slant it with any hope for conservatives. And it was early, early, early in the night. And I think that alone pushed so, especially the boomer population. Now they'll still watch Fox news and stuff, but they're much more, if you go on Facebook, which I hardly ever do, but they're much more outspoken you know, now. And I think it pushed a whole lot of conservatives, a whole lot of traditional Republicans into a zone where they don't feel like they have a home. They can't trust the traditional, you know, Republican Party that they've been voting for their whole life. And the future is who is going to be in control. And then they look to the left and you've got like the, you've got like the squad, you know. Well, I'm going to tell a dirty little secret to your audience. You ready for this? (laughs) As much as they may hate to hear it, the Democratic Party historically was actually the party of liberty. Now, when you got up to the 50s and 60s, that, that's when you sort of had, uh, you know, people call it the, the switch. That, that's when you really kind of started seeing the old right kind of be pushed more towards the Republican Party. But the Republican Party was actually, if you go back to its, to its foundings back in the 1850s and early 1860s, it was a very problematic party. For anybody who considers themselves a conservative, um, Lincoln, not a conservative at all. He, he was actually a radical, radical revolutionary, completely changed the structure of what the United States was. And so it, it's honestly, it's always kind of been weird seeing that uh, as I've gotten a little bit older and, and actually understood the context of politics. It, it's really kind of weird to see people who think they're conservative being the traditionally very liberal or neo-Marxist party. And that there was actually the Red Republicans, and they they were literally back in the 1860s, they were very devout fans of Marx. Hmm. And you had another faction who wanted mercantilism. So I, I mean, you you have a lot of very highly problematic stuff coming out of the Republican Party early on. So to an extent, um, yes, you're you're absolutely right. Those people probably do feel disillusioned and like they're they're now left without a home. But where are they going to go? Because because right. in my own personal opinion. As somebody who has paid very close attention to libertarian politics for a while, that party's a lost cause. Now, there's, there's a caucus trying to take it over. It's the Mises caucus. They're trying to do some good things. They're, they're more on the radical side of the spectrum, kind of where I was before I decided to pursue this path. And if they can take over the party, great. But the former chair, uh, Nick Sarwark, he did a lot, I mean a ton of damage. He basically made it the Democrat Party light with some good sentiments on fiscal policy. And to me, libertarianism can be so much more than, you know, let's have legal weed and and legal prostitution. (laughs) It it can be so much more than that. Right. Yeah. Well, the weed thing's going to happen no matter what. In fact, it already is. I mean, most states, even when it's not outlawed, that the police aren't even enforcing, you know, when they pick somebody up and they have it on them. Uh, That's sort of a done deal, in my opinion. Um, So... When you you not you had mentioned to me um, this in this whole idea this concept of uh, judicial incorporation, and I have to admit I don't know really anything about that. And so you seemed pretty pretty uh, passionate about that. I just wanted to help me out here. What what do you mean by judicial incorporation? 
Well, I would say it's arguably the biggest cancer in modern American society. Uh, but for you and any audience members who aren't really familiar with the term, basically judicial incorporation is the usurpation of powers by the federal court system, including the obviously Supreme Court. So under the original Constitution uh, and even under the articles, it was very hotly debated whether or not state law could be reviewed by a federal court be that a Supreme Court or just a federal district court, whatever, it was very hotly debated and actually shot down. John Marshall himself, the ultra-nationalist, John Marshall himself, in the ratifying convention of the state of Virginia, assured the anti-federalist faction there was no way, because the state was sovereign, there was no way it could be hauled before court because that wouldn't be proper. But that's exactly what we have now, is you have federal judges legislating from the bench on all kinds of different matters. And for your audience, I'm, I'm going to specifically focus on this. In how many states do you think abortion was legal prior to Roe v. Wade? Uh, well, I'm assuming it would have been all of them. No, it was illegal in 46 out of 50. Okay. So four states, four states was it legal. Now, what I want the wow. Christians in the audience to understand is Liberal Christianity is a huge problem. It is a huge problem. It, and it's honestly something I'm very new to discovering. Now, I will tell you, I don't really go to church anymore, but living up here versus where I came from, because I'm originally from Louisiana, the brand of Christianity, night and day, night and day. Down south, you still have a lot of Christian fundamentals. Up here, you have, we have to love everybody no matter what, and we have <laughs> to support all these causes because Jesus said, give unto Caesar. And so that Christians need to understand that conservatives, uh, people who like liberty, depending on where on that spectrum you fall, you could be super far right, you could be center right, whatever. But Christians and people within that demographic, they are losing the culture war. And the left and the progressives currently are dominating the culture war. So any hope and victory that they have is going to lie in local control and state laws. In Texas, look at the abortion bill that they just passed. Yeah, They're ruffling an awful lot of feathers, and there's already calls for the Supreme Court overturn this law. No, absolutely not. But, but at the same time, California had an assault weapons ban that got overturned by a federal judge earlier this year. Now, I'm a big gun rights guy. I'm going to assume you're probably a big gun rights guy. Yes, sir. But... California state constitution doesn't say anything about firearm ownership at all, at all. That's who California is subject to. California is not subject to the general constitution. The general constitution is for the general government. So that federal judge had no right in overturning that. So what Christians need to understand and what right-leaning people in general need to understand is it's local control. If you strip the Supreme Court of its power now, you're not going to have to worry about it 10 years from now. Right. Yeah. So that's where the benefit is. So that that's what incorporation is. It's any federal court, be it the Supreme Court or, like I said, a federal district court, meddling where they don't belong and overturning state laws. And basically, if you want to take this approach, bailing the bad states out of their worst decisions, how much worse would California be today and how much closer to implosion would they be if the federal court system hadn't uh, bailed them out of their worst laws? We don't know. Right. I mean, I mean, they're already losing one seat in the federal house next year. How many more would they have lost? We can't ever know that now. Right. Right. Well, maybe if they did secede, then uh, 
<laughs> it wouldn't take long for them to just become, you know, one of these failed communist uh, state nation states. <laughs> that that's what I believe. Now I'm open to again. I'm open to being wrong, but that's that's something we're being deprived of right now. Yeah. For people in the United States, we're so accustomed to American exceptionalism that we can't even conceive of something that may not actually be as great as what we perceive it as. Now, while I'm adamantly against socialism and communism in all, excuse me, in all forms, what I will say is if California left and they tried something like that and it ended up doing well, that's going to make me ask myself a lot of important ideological questions and say, hey, where, maybe where did I go wrong? Because let's say if Texas and California left, Texas fails and California booms, okay, let's look at the policies. Let's, let's see what's going on here. So now we can't do this overnight, obviously, you know, because if Texas leaves and they want to be free market, yes, there's going to be an adjustment period versus if California leaves and they just want to print their way to, uh, you know, prosperity, if you can do that, (laughs) which I don't think you can. But if California left and they tried it that way, obviously in the short term, California is going to look on paper like it's doing better. But let's say if we give it a 20 year timetable, okay, who's doing better at the end? Yeah. I think it's going to be Texas. Yeah. So your whole idea about this uh, judicial incorporation, um, I think I I had that concept. I think I called it judicial tyranny is basically what what how I looked at it. And that really came to light when Obama was in office and the Supreme Court ruled on, on traditional marriage on, you know, they, they really struck down traditional marriage and, uh, and it was so celebrated by the left. Um I'm kind of over that now, you know, for me, a covenant with God is a covenant with God. And, you know, but my big concern as a pastor at that point would have been, you know, am I going to be forced to have to marry people that have a lifestyle that I don't, that isn't biblical, which is what I've, you know, made a commitment to uphold. Um, that was really the first time I saw judicial tyranny. And then I thought we were going to see it with health care when, when they put forth Obamacare, you know, I thought they were going to pull it right up into that and force it. And we it. have. Yeah, well, yeah, we have, really, yeah. So, yeah. Well, no, I mean, absolutely we have, because you have private insurance companies who are pulling out of certain states because they, they can't make a profit. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to say this. I think Obamacare is performing exactly the way it was intended to. I don't think this is a failure of it. I think this is a feature. Mm-hmm. And I think it was intentionally made this bad so they could try to push us more and more towards a single-payer system, which – Unfortunately, you have a lot of people calling for that now. A lot of Californians, a lot of New Yorkers, basically anybody in these blue states, to them it makes all the sense in the world because look at Europe. Well, the only problem with that is many of these European countries that they hold up as single payer, they're not single payer. They, They have a system sort of close to ours but they have a lot of other factors. They have smaller populations, they have more homogenous populations, they have healthier populations on average. They have a lot of stuff that is going in their favor that we don't necessarily have here. And again, it's not a single payer system, i.e. the government does not pay all of the expenses. Even in the UK with the NHS, you, you have a lot of people who buy supplemental private policies. Yeah. Now I actually did a healthcare trilogy because I, I think it's important for the right to win this battle. I, I think it's critically important for the right to win this battle but I don't hear anybody out there saying these are the ideas that work. So that that's kind of what I was doing with my episode is saying, look, here are things that other countries are doing that are working extremely well. Here are some things that we're doing here that are working extremely well. And so the healthcare battle, it, it's one that's raging. And the sooner any state secedes, 
they can try their own thing. If California wants to go and try to have single payer, I, I don't think it's going to work because Vermont tried it with the benefit of federal grants and Vermont still couldn't make it work. But California has the right to try that as long as they're not forcing it on me. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned something there, too, that's a danger that a lot of people don't think about is when you have a single payer and it's a federal government or it's an over, you know, a giant organization like that. What happens when we have a situation like we're facing right now with uh, vaccination mandates? You're in big trouble. You don't have options. You know? Yep. And that's that's the beauty of a federalist system, uh, which is what we're supposed to have. But at this point, um, I'm not going to say that federalism failed. I'm going to say that the people failed to enforce it. And if we just go ahead and and officially break it up or formally break it up, then we don't have to worry about that. Right. So do you think, you know, in your opinion, do you think that uh, that the whole vaccination mandate thing is going to get the traction that Biden hopes it gets and be forced into so many people's lives that are opposing it? So my most recent episode, which is coming out tomorrow, is going to go into the weeds on this. So I, I don't want to steal my own thunder. <laughs> but Give us a um, teaser. I will leave, right. So I will leave it at this, though. Post-September 9th, which is when he made that mandate, now 30% of companies are saying that they're going to implement a vaccination mandate or their employees are going to risk termination. Prior to September 9th, that number was only at 7%. That, that's a very concerning jump. Very, mm-hmm. very concerning jump. Now, what you have, too, is now the idea is picking up steam for landlords to actually tell their tenants, crazy. get the jab or get out. And I don't like that. No, I, I don't like that at all. And that's that's another problem that I've had with with libertarianism. For anybody who's libertarian curious, they're they're going to tell you the same thing that the landlord owns the property. You don't have a right to that room. My approach is a little bit more nuanced than that because it's like, well, look, if I'm paying my rent on time and I've never damaged the property, yes, I have every right to continue this contract. And Again, un- unfortunately, not all libertarians see it that way, and, and there's no few of them who are actually taking the property rights approach. And my, my rebuttal to that is who, when you have a conflict of property rights, whose matter more? Somebody's property right over a room or somebody's property right over their own body? Right. And I know what's out of that I'm all on. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody listening would say – would I think when you frame it in the way you just framed it, um, it, it's, it's a no brainer and it's, it's extremely frustrating people I talk to and they have no problem with these mandates. They're like, they under, they say, but it's for everybody's safety. Why wouldn't you want to do it? It's for safety. And I said, because the minute that I give up the right to make a choice for my own body is the minute I've given up the essence of what my own personal freedom is. Like you can, yeah. you can put laws all over the place, you, you know, but the minute that I gave up my own personal you know, personhood, uh, what goes in and out of my body. Now I'm no longer free fundamentally. Well, and let's take it, right. Well, and let's take it one step further. If they can force you to get a vaccine, they can force you to exercise. Right. I, I'm a little on the heavy side. So if you know, <laughs> no. what, what's going to stop them from saying you must do this governmental regimented program every day. Right. You know, I, and I was in the military once upon a time. I can tell you government exercise is not the funnest thing to do in the world. So, <laughs> But the the big point here is I don't want to open that Pandora's box at all. Now, granted, if if a state secedes, so let's say if California goes, have at it. I don't care. Right. But here in Colorado, I don't want that. 
I don't want to be subjected to that. I don't want to have to go every, you know, every year or every six months and say, oh, well, it looks like you're five pounds overweight, so we're going to increase your exercise. Oh, by the way, we're also going to regulate your diet. No more fast food for you. That that opens the door to all kinds of stuff. And people may think we're being absurd, but that sets the precedent. Like, that opens the door to that. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you've ever spent any time in uh, in real observation of communist nations and countries, they're in that. They That happens to them. And, uh, and, you know, the next frontier in America, obviously, is the social credit system. So, you know, you have – it's just more of a clamping down. But like in your – so I'm going to ask you to pontificate for a minute here. Where do you – in a year from now, where do you see this going? Because I see a lot of – uh, bubbling up of pushback. I see a lot of um, what's amazing to me is I'm seeing people who are on both sides, blue and red, coming together on this issue of mandates because they both agree on that fundamental level that the government shouldn't be telling me what to put in my body, you know. So I'm cynical. Uh, just, just to be completely transparent, I'm very cynical because I think as the propaganda gets turned up through the mainstream media outlets, and the rhetoric gets turned up from the general government, I, I think that more and more people are going to cave. Hey, did you follow what, what just recently happened in New York with their healthcare workers? Oh, yeah. It was like 80,000 yeah. people, I think. Well, so it started off, it would have been roughly about 80,000, but at the last hour, about 30,000 of them caved. Really? So, yeah. So that that's something, I, I mean, I don't know. Yes, you have a lot of people who are, who are saying the right things, but... Even in the libertarian circles, and I, I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to this, but even in the libertarian circles, that's supposed to be the most radical of the radical in terms of personal freedom. You have a lot of people who are not willing to give up comfort to fight this. And at first, I kind of had sympathy for that. It's like, hey, if you have a family, obviously you got to put food on the table. But, you know, then I kind of started thinking about it. And I went, I went back and read some of the founding documents, primarily the Declaration of Independence. And those, those people, they meant it. When they said our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor— that meant something. Mm-hmm. And so now if we can't, and something else has just been bothering me to no end is you, you have a lot of people, libertarians, Republicans, whatever. They're like, Oh man, I really want to go to this concert, but the, you know, the venue's got this vaccine requirement. What do y'all think I should go? Do you think I should skip it? And I'm like, look, man, if we can't give up a concert, like we're, we're never going to give up a job. Right. Right. So I guess I'm a little bit more cynical. I, I'm glad that you're you're seeing the results that you are. Um, most of what I have read the, has been kind of counter to that. But admittedly, I've been reading a lot of mainstream sites lately just, just to kind of, I guess, form an idea of where we might be going. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's the problem. <laughs> you know, I'll admit that. But when I look at it, um, I, I'm a little bit more cynical. And I think a year from now, you're, you're going to have a very, very small handful of holdouts who are just being persecuted relentlessly. Um, maybe not physically, but right. you know, in, in terms of rhetoric and in terms of how they're being treated by jobs and, and maybe even with, with the tenant situation. So landlords, I, I think it could get very, very ugly before it gets better. Yeah, I, I think the next frontier is going to be banking. I think they're going to, you know, when you start seeing a bank, oh, if you're not vaccinated, you can't bank with us, which makes absolutely no sense, right? Because literally. 99% of banking's digital anyways. I don't think, I can't remember the last time I stepped into a bank. It's been years. Well, I don't think it will, it'll necessarily for the banks. I don't think it's going to necessarily fall on the vaccination status. It's going to be, do you, do you have the right uh, viewpoints? So, right. 
oh, we see you're registered Republican or we see you're registered Libertarian or American Constitution Party, um, we're going to have to go ahead and, and freeze your accounts. And that that's more so what I'm afraid of. And I, and I know that sounds like I have my tenfold hat on, but they, they've already done it. Who, right. who was a uh, – oh, my gosh, who was, who was that guy? Man, he was a big, big-time guy in the Trump yeah. administration. It, was it – Oh, a, my Lord. Pro-Sebac? Pro, 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 um, no. No, it was one of the military guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, Flynn. Flynn. Flynn? Yeah. 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 Chase froze him out of his account, and he made a big, big stink about it. Mm -hmm. And then Chase all of a sudden said, oh, this was this was a mistake in the algorithm. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> the the algorithm, huh? So yeah, that it means... just so happened. Yeah. <laughs> the algorithm picked out a conservative super Trump supporter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, big, big-time prominent voice in the Republican Party, sure. Yeah, that, that was a mistake. I, I just know it was. So that that's what I'm more of afraid of is it's not necessarily going to be on the vaccination status. It's going to be more so do you take the right ideological outlook yeah. for the powers that be. But with the judicial incorporation aspect, I do want to bring it back on that a little bit before yeah. we leave that topic. So for anybody who's interested in that and anybody who does perceive it as a problem, some of the best, best minds that you can read on the topic – are John C. Calhoun, John Taylor of Caroline, John Randolph of Roanoke, and Spencer Rowan, and especially Spencer Rowan. Um, you being from Virginia, are you familiar with Spencer Rowan? No. <laughs> he was the, the leader of the equivalent of Virginia State Supreme Court, while John Marshall was the leader of the U.S. Supreme Court, and he was a thorn in Marshall's side. But he, he wrote several essays um, against the Marbury v. Madison and Cohen's v. Virginia cases where, I mean, he, he laid out what's called the compact theory of the union. He taught us the history about how judicial review was supposed to work. Only states had the right of judicial review of state laws and just a, a fountain of information on the judicial aspect of it because of the position that he held. And he actually, for a little while, he, he was a cohort of St. George Tucker who was also a very staunch defender of the compact theory. And uh, we, we can get into that if, if you'd like. Do, are you familiar with the compact theory, or do you think your yeah. audience is? Go ahead. No, I'm, I'm sure people don't know what that is. Okay, so the compact theory, I call it the compact fact. Uh, I was influenced by Brian McClanahan, who coined that term as far as I know. But the compact fact basically says that the Constitution is a contract that was ratified between the states. And so the states are the ultimate sovereigns. The states created the general government, so the states have the right to extinguish it. Now, to that point, you had asked me earlier, too, uh, before we started recording about, are there any practical provisions in existing law to allow for this? And so if you have a fundamental understanding of the compact theory and what that actually means, so you, you had 13 sovereign states who came together. They formed a general government, again, for general purposes, and it, the general government is just their agent. The states retain all the power. But for provisions within the law, I'm going to ask you this. Who, who ratified the Constitution? Obviously, I already gave you the answer, but who ratified the Constitution? Yeah, it would have been those individual states. Yes, not an amorphous glob of people. Right. And, and that's important because it was ratified through state convention. Now, Article 7 of the U.S. Constitution affirms this because it tells us that the ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states so ratifying the same. And what's interesting about that is when the ratification process happened, Rhode Island and North Carolina both actually did not initially ratify it. And hmm. for an intermediate, um, excuse me, for an intermediary period, I think of approximately one to two years, 
both of those states were actually independent countries. They were not part of the union. And we have other precedent for that too. Texas, anybody who's familiar with the story of Texas, they were an independent republic for nine years, 1836 to 1845. It was never an amorphous American people. It was never, ever the people in the aggregate. It's always been the state. And I love John Randolph of Roanoke, your audience. I, I really beseech all of you to go and read about him, anything that you can get your hands on about him. But John Randolph of Roanoke said it best when he told us that the general government is but the breath of the nostrils of the states. That's how he viewed it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. No, I agree. He So he, he thought they could extinguish it, you know, basically with a wave of a hand. So John Randolph of Roanoke told us a lot of great ways to fight this. And he was a representative in Roanoke County or he, well, he represented a district in, in Roanoke County, Virginia. So John Randolph told us that uh, John Taylor of Caroline told us how to fight the fusion of government and finance. You, you have all these old Republicans. Once upon a time, our Congress had so many members who were basically Ron Paul. It isn't that hard to believe because it's, now it's like, wow, we got Ron Paul and that's like a once in a lifetime achievement. No, there was once upon a time, the American Congress, especially the Southern delegations, it was basically nothing but a bunch of Ron Pauls. Man, it, you were so right. When you, everything is flipped. Everything is flipped. And when you, I, I, you know, I, I'm the victim of a uh, public school education here in Virginia. And, uh, and I was a bad student at that. So uh, I didn't help it any, but um, they don't teach you these things. And I think there is a woeful ignorance to a majority of our younger population in particular, but a lot of people have just never taken the time and the energy to, you know, research these things, look into them and understand them. And they're not being taught, for sure they're not being taught in school. No, I mean, I got the cartoon version of the Federalist versus the Anti-Federalist. I, I mean, that that was boiled down to... One wanted small government, one wanted big government. No, that was not the fight at all. One one did not really want a general government really at all. They wanted state governments with kind of like a loose confederation, and one wanted a powerful centralized government. Now, granted, you can say some of the old Republicans dropped the ball, and I, I'll be the first to admit that. Jefferson himself compromised a lot once he got in office, and that's unfortunate, but when you have the pre-ratification debates and anti-federalist versus federalist, it was not small government versus big government. It was basically state governments versus central government. That's the real kicker. But to that extent, another point of interest, I hear this a lot when I get into secession talks. So people are like, well, the states created the Articles of Confederation, so the article said that the union was perpetual. Okay, well, let's think this through. To accede to the Constitution, what does that logically imply that they had to do to the Articles of Confederation? Well, yeah, they'd have to succeed. Yeah, you'd have to succeed and then accede to the new one, right? Right. Obviously. So when the article said that the Union is perpetual, that it's not to the extent that it endures forever. What that meant was it did not have an expiration date. So it, it wouldn't periodically have to be re-ratified. But they understood that the states were sovereign from the get-go because Article 2 of the Articles of Confederation actually explicitly says this. Each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right 
which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States and Congress assembled. That that spells it out pretty clear. <laughs> I, what I need you to do, Mr. Jeffersonian, is I need you to gather every, all 50 of our governors of this glorious United States and put them in a room, and you need to read that to them and explain it to them. They might actually get enjoyment of knowing they have more power than they've forgotten. Yeah, well, and, it, you know, even under the Constitution that we have, you have the Tenth Amendment. Use it. Right. You have the Ninth Amendment. Use it. You have the Eleventh Amendment. Use it. Yeah. That, even under what we have, look, you still have a lot of stuff there. But for the people who say that the Constitution was just layered on top of the Articles of Confederation, I don't take that view. But for the people who say that, well, no, they didn't secede to a seed. They, they just layered it in to make it more perfect. It's like, well, okay, then we have to understand that underlying the Constitution, then you still have the articles that are dictating this. So, you know, that's a two-edged sword, and, and we win with that mm-hmm. either way. It's like, okay, either they secede it to a seed, which applies, obviously, a state has the right to do that, or the articles are still there and governors still have that exact power. And it's like, let's use it. Right. Our state government, not necessarily the, the governor, but the state government, state right. legislatures. Yeah. And then just with this, in terms of breaking down this nationalist myth, the word national is nowhere in the U.S. Constitution. It does not exist. If you go through and do a command F, if you pull it up on the, com- on the computer and do a control F or a command F, search the word national, it is not there. It is not there because we are not a unitary nation state. And there is nothing in the Constitution that says secession is illegal. Secession is, it's a gray area. Right. Now, because I've read what the founders said, I think they obviously realized it could happen. Actually, Jefferson's first inaugural address, have you ever read that? No. Okay, so Jefferson's first inaugural, there's a faction of the Federalist Party up in New England who wants to leave because they, you know, again, they they saw Jefferson as like the worst possible thing that could happen. And they thought that his policies were going to hurt the shipping industries and the fledgling manufacturers up there. So you had people like Timothy Pickering and a few other prominent Federalists. They wanted out. Jefferson, in his first inaugural, said, let them leave. (laughs) <laughs> and let reason combat this error of judgment. Isn't it crazy how how much things changed in a you know roughly sixty year span? You had a member of the founding generation in his initial address to the public saying, "Let those who would break this union apart feel free to do so, and let reason combat the error of judgment." That that was his stance. Wow. So regardless of the atrocity that is Texas v. White, which was a Supreme Court case in eighteen sixty nine. States are still the sovereign political units even today within this political union. Man. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, back to the Constitution there, you, you had mentioned um, that these, these men, that when they signed this, they believed it. They, they, they wholeheartedly believed it. A lot of people don't realize how uh, many of those people either died uh, under all kinds of, <laughs> you know, they, they were either murdered uh, you know, uh, chased down, their families were hurt because their names were on that document um, as we were trying to establish this republic. Um, it was literally, um, I, I don't, I, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I think maybe all but one or two actually died from, you know, after signing it because of, you know, war, situa- all kinds of just revolutionary stuff that was happening. 
Well, a lot of them died in, in the aftermath, but you, you had a lot of them, even if they didn't die, they died. They eventually died destitute. So like if they didn't die right. because they signed it, when they did pass away from old age, they died destitute. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was actually a good example of this. And, and a lot of people may not know that, but Jefferson once upon a time was very, very wealthy. And when he started practicing law, he let a lot of people pay him on account. Well, then he stopped practicing law. Now, he was a very prolific lawyer while, while he was in the trade, but he stopped practicing law to pursue other interests. Um, the state basically called on him for political service, and he, he had the idea that he'd rather do that. Well, he becomes governor of Virginia, and the revolution breaks out, and Virginia was printing its own currency. Actually, many of the states at that point were printing their own currency, or colonies at that point were printing their own currency. And Virginia's currency was described as not worth as much as oak leaves, if that tells you how bad the inflation was. So what happened was Jefferson still had a lot of outstanding debts with British creditors at this point, and then he had people paying him back for, for his lawyer time with worthless money. Well, what he did, he turned around and paid the, the British creditors off with this worthless currency. The war is over, and all of a sudden all these British creditors come back and say, hey, I know we took that money, but that's not good enough. You're going to have to pay us back with money that's worth something. Hmm. And so that actually left him in pretty bad financial shape. Later on in life, he, he co-signed on a, on a, what ended up being a pretty bad speculative investment with a friend. And the friend basically left him high and dry, and that just really kind of drained him. And it, it was very sad. By the end of his life, the state of Virginia would actually do an annual raffle, basically as like a Thomas Jefferson charity event, wow. and, and give him the money. But when he died, he died a pauper. Wow. Brilliant, yep. man. Unbelievable. That's an unbelievable story. Like, that's crazy to think about, uh, yep. man. We, can you imagine any one of our politicians today go, even accepting that? <laughs> no. No. And, and, you know, Ron, Ron Paul is, is somebody I will always have the utmost respect for. And it, But, you know, Ron Paul was one example. He would give back any excess that, that his office had at the end of the year. Wow. You don't hear of anybody else doing that. No, of course you, not. You just don't hear of anybody else doing that. But yeah, Jefferson was was a magnificent uh, person to, to study or is a magnificent person to study. And it, it pains me to no end what we're seeing with the destruction of Southern culture because it's only a matter of time until that whole generation swept away because of the same reasons they got rid of the War for Southern Independence generation. It's only a matter of time. The principles were the same and the underlying cultural and societal norms were the same. And there, there's actually, there are people right now adamantly calling for Jefferson's cancellation. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's sick, man. It is. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I that, mean, it's... That, that whole topic is just, it's, it is sickening. It's, it's frustrating. It's, it's ignorant. And it's, uh, it, it, yeah, the whole woke thing anyways. I, yeah, don't, I don't want to... <laughs> well, who wrote the Northwest Ordinance? Right. I'm assuming Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, for the audience, the significance of that is Jefferson wrote that document and it it made slavery illegal in the Northwest Territories, which at that time would have been like Ohio, Michigan. Well, not maybe not Michigan, uh, but like Ohio, maybe Kentucky, uh, Indiana. Jefferson outlawed slavery there. Yes. Did he own slaves? Absolutely. It was a fact of life back then. Not to say that it was a good thing, but it was a fact of life back then, and he always took pains to make sure that he was kind to the people who fell under him. Yeah. Was everybody like that? No. But did Thomas Jefferson believe that it was wrong and take practical steps to try to get rid of it? 
Yes. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Man, dude, I think uh, you have t- taken us to school here <laughs> in this episode, and uh, you've probably forgotten more than I'll ever know about history <laughs> and our founding fathers and the law of the Constitution. Um Man, I tell you what, what, where can our listeners find you, find more of you, and how can they connect with you? So the best way to hear what I have to say, if you care, is the Jeffersonian Tradition podcast. If you want to interact with me, I run a MeWe group. Uh, it's titled after the show, so it's just, uh, well, it is a secret group. So if you get on MeWe, basically what you need to do is send me a friend request. And then I'm probably going to ask you a couple of questions because lately I've been getting some weird randos that, that have been friend of me and they, they're like, oh, I've never even heard of your show. I just thought your name was cool. So <laughs> if you sent me that friend request, what I'm probably going to do is ask you a couple of questions, um, just kind of see how you discovered the show. And, you know, we'll, we'll take it from there. If you want to be part of the group, I'll invite you into the group. And aside from that, uh, you can also reach out to me through email, which is Mr. Jeffersonian at Outlook.com. So those are the ways that you can get in touch with me. And, you know, with American history, there's so much stuff in that early period. There's so much stuff in that early period that we need to rediscover. And specifically, there, there's a website. Uh, it's oll.libertyfund, I believe, .org. Give me one second. Let me actually pull that up on my computer. Let's see. O-L-L. Yeah, oll.libertyfund.org. This website is a treasure trove of early American documents. You can get it completely free. They have books from the ratification convention and, or excuse me, the constitutional convention in Philadelphia. They have books from the, from the individual state conventions, all completely free. You can get it as a facsimile PDF. So it's like a, an actual picture of the scanned pages. Wow. Or if you like e-readers, you can download it in Kindle format. That's how I prefer to, to read them just so I can do highlighting and all that kind of stuff and, and read it on the go. So there's all different kinds of stuff in there. And for anybody, especially who cares about the financial aspect of this and, and why we should say no to a fusion of finance and government, they have all kinds of different works from John Taylor. And he, he, I mean, he took everybody to school on why it's a bad idea to allow the the government to get in bed with the bank. So that's another resource I wanted to pitch there. Um, did we have any other topics that we wanted to hit? Well, I think one thing I, I think it would be really nice to leave people with an action point. What what would be your recommendation for somebody who's like me? You know, like I'm I'm I've got an opportunity. Uh, how do I how do I make change? How do I help preserve what was originally put in place and bring it back, even if I can? Well. Read. read. Read everything that you can get your hands on from the early period. Um, specifically, I'm, I'm going to tell everybody, read John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun laid out action plans. Uh, John Randolph of Roanoke laid out action plans. And you can, for Calhoun, it's he's a little bit more accessible, in my opinion. Every, everything that I've read about John Randolph is, is more so secondhand stuff. Um, just So Randolph, it's kind of funny. Randolph, when he would give a speech, he would ramble for like five hours, right? So he, he never wrote his speeches down, though. So, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that he could keep a coherent string of thought for that long without writing it down. But what would happen is the, the newspapers would provide a, a transcript of his speech for a while. It eventually got to the point they were like, this, this is too much. Like, we're not just going to sit here and transcribe all this. So what I've found of him mainly comes from people who wrote secondhand biographies of him, and they reference his letters. 
because uh, he, he did write a whole bunch of letters, and then they did go back and read what, what speeches were transcribed by the newspapers. They did go back and read those and pull excerpts from them. But John Randolph is great. Uh, John C. Calhoun is great. John Taylor of Carolina is great. Spencer Rowan, obviously. But in terms of what you can actually do, like aside from learning the historical stuff, what you can actually do is get in touch with your local legislators. They're, they're very accessible, at least compared to, the, to your federal representation, such as it is. They're very, very accessible. And it's funny because one of, one of my listeners is actually from South Dakota, and I was going to reach out to them because there's kind of like a controversy brewing with, with Christy Noem. And so I was going to reach out to these legislators who wrote a bill that she vetoed that would have prohibited private employers from requiring a vaccine. And it was hilarious because I called them, it rang once, and I'm talking to them, right? So <laughs> it's, uh, it's crazy. But that, that's what you can do. And, I mean, honestly, that's what it's going to take, especially – from a cultural aspect, if you feel, if you're in the South especially, and you feel that what you have is worth preserving, and you feel that your ancestors are worthy of honor, you're going to have to get out there and defend them. They're, I mean, obviously, they can't defend themselves. They're statues now, or they're in the ground. Right. So that's what it's going to take. You're going to have to get uncomfortable. You're going to have to talk to your legislators and let them know, like, look, this matters to me. I'm going like, to do everything I can to get you out of office unless you preserve this unless you take actionable steps to do this. So, and in addition to that, you got to get out there and, and, and talk with the people. And that's something I myself, I'm trying to do a better job of when I'm out in my neighborhood. Um, I, I have two hound dogs. We, we have to walk them a lot, obviously high energy. So when we go out and walk now and I see my neighbors out, you know, I'll, I'll try to strike up a conversation with them. And we talk a little bit about decentralization, which, which is very important, but you know, recently it's been more of like, what do you think about the vaccine stuff? And unfortunately, because I live in Colorado, uh, quite a few of my neighbors are like, oh, it's not a horrible idea. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is no, this is atrocious. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So that, that's what it takes, though, is you got to talk to people and change their minds. And actually, um, just a kind of a personal story on this. I think this was two weeks ago. Uh, my neighbor right next to me, he invited me over to a neighborhood barbecue. Well, it ended up only my wife and I and then one other older couple showed up. And this other older couple, they were very much so boomer, boomer con conservatives. And we got on the topic of politics. Um, you know, it seems like that always happens. But <laughs> we got on the topic of politics, and I brought up decentralization and went full on and said, hey, well, what about secession? Because I could tell these people were very upset with what Joe Mussolini's doing. And so I brought up secession at first. They were very, like, they pushed back extremely hard, and they were like, oh, it's never going to work. You're going to have California overran by China. Uh, mm -hmm. Texas is going to get overran by Mexico. <laughs> and I'm like, that's already happening. At least in <laughs> Texas, that's already happening. You know, look at look at the Haitian um, disaster that happened down there, the, the Haitian immigrant disaster that happened down there. So if Texas leaves, they don't have to rely on the general government to provide them any sort of protection, which actually they, they don't even have to do that right now, Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution. But Abbott's not going to do that. Right. Abbott's not that radical. Hmm. Now, Don Huffines, for anybody who's in Texas, Don Huffines has my full endorsement. He is using rhetoric like we probably haven't heard in this country since 1860. And his whole platform is state sovereignty. He, he's going to do everything he, within his power to basically circumvent the general government and say, no, this is Texas. I'm governing on behalf of Texas. So Don Huffines has my full endorsement for anybody in Texas. 
I, I interviewed him. If you want to listen to him on my show, he's done several interviews on other shows. If you just search him on YouTube, he's got all kinds of campaign videos up. He, he's awesome. But that's what it's going to take is getting out and getting active in the local area. Because if you can take back the local area, you can kind of start to revitalize that culture. Yeah. Versus if you stay on the sidelines and you let the schools handle it, we see what that's getting us. Right. Yeah. And now they're, you know, you, you know, these parents, you, you, they started poking the kids, right? They started getting it to the kids and, and parents got upset and now they're crazy legislation being proposed. <laughs> I think you probably saw, well, right? Well, yes. And, but the scary thing, the scary thing with that is you have some parents, they can't wait to get their kids poked. They, they can't wait. Well, and. I was referencing oh, I was referencing um, the the letter that came forth this week about uh, p- parents that would be outspoken at school board meetings how they would be labeled oh, yeah. as a Being domestic terrorist yeah yeah just crazy and see if you secede you don't have to worry about Merrick Garland trying to hunt you down <laughs> right. so it's uh you know there there's all kinds of benefits to it and you know if a state if any state secedes. We, we don't know what we don't know, right? And, and what I mean by that is, are they going to have to stand alone or will other states go to? Right. We don't know that. Until it happens, we don't know that. Yeah. Now, I will tell you personally, I feel like if California goes, they're probably going to take the whole West Coast. Now, whether or not they become a confederacy or whether or not they remain as three separate nation states, I, I don't know that. But I, if California leaves, I think Washington and Oregon are probably going to follow. Yeah. But sort of the same thing with Texas. If Texas leaves, I think they're going to pull out Louisiana, Arkansas, Oklahoma, maybe Kansas, and maybe Mississippi. Yeah. And again, are they going to form a regional confederacy? I, I don't know. Daniel Miller does not want that. He's For anybody who doesn't know him, he's the leader of the Texas movement. Daniel Miller doesn't want that. He wants a completely independent Texas because he feels like if we, you know, if there was another regional union set up, we would kind of run into the same problems that we have now. Right. I think that has a lot of credence. And I do agree with him that much of what we need to do can be accomplished just by treaty. So the future is, is going to be interesting yeah. because, again, this topic, I think it's inevitable. But I did want to pitch a, a couple of last things here, uh, I guess just kind of a reading list. So for anybody who wants to write this down, I'll go somewhat slow. But for books, you need to read A Disquisition on Government by John C. Calhoun. In that book, he lays out the idea of a concurrent majority, extremely important, especially for states that are still decent. They uh, definitely need to apply the concurrent majority to preserve their culture. Another book by John C. Calhoun is going to be a discourse on the constitution and government of the United States or of the U S and in that one, he lays out a lot of interest in history. He talks about the compact theory, uh, probably sets it forward in one of the best ways that I've read it. And he also talks about things that he thought could, could solve this. And it's interesting because in that book, he actually pitched the idea of a plural executive at the federal level. So basically each section hmm. would get to have a press and that I thought that was pretty neat because in, in his mind, each one would have a veto power. So, you know, things that would be harmful to the South, the Southern president would say, Nope, I forbid. And then things that would be harmful to the North, you would have the Northern president doing the same thing. And and now, especially if we broke apart into like five different countries, it would be cool to see that. Or even if we stay together, it would be cool to see kind of like an executive council versus one single elected King, like we have now. <laughs> And that one, again, is a discourse on the Constitution and government of the U.S. And then for John Randolph of Roanoke, um, I've read three books on him. There are more that are on my list that I have not gotten to yet. But the three that I've read is John Randolph by Henry Adams. 
Uh, in that book, Adams actually tried to disparage John Randolph and tear him down. I personally don't think he succeeded in that endeavor because as much as he hated Randolph, he had to admit the man was, was pretty principled. And then you have Randolph of Roanoke by Russell Kirk. Uh, Russell Kirk was one of the foremost conservative minds back in the 30s, so very interesting take on Randolph from his perspective. And then there's John Randolph of Roanoke by David Johnson. That's a more modern work. Uh, it was written, I think, like in 2012, 2013, somewhere along in there. And uh, that one's actually interesting. That one really kind of reveals Randolph the man versus Randolph the politician. I mean, it's got a lot of Randolph the politician in there, but it, it really gets into more Randolph the man. So those, and then for anybody who is interested in the war for Southern independence, and the whole topic of secession, there's a book that was written by A.T. Bledsoe. It's called Is Davis a Traitor? And A.T. Bledsoe was one of the foremost like prominent politicians or political minds. I think he was actually an attorney, but he was one of the foremost thinkers of the day um, back in the 1860s. He actually served in the Confederate Army, and he wrote this book as a defense of the concept of secession. So those books... Um, Another really interesting one, if you if you like the War for Southern Independence, you got to read. John, uh, excuse me, Jefferson Davis is the rise and fall of the Confederate government. That is a must read. That is a very long read, but it is a must read. And he actually he wrote he compiled that while he was sitting in jail, and uh, just a very very interesting perspective to get firsthand accounts from the man who who headed the Confederate government. And surprise, surprise, out of roughly a thousand pages, slavery got maybe 20. So, you know, <laughs> take that as you will. And then just the last book on the topic of secession, since that's what the episode was about, there's a book by Cynthia Nicoletti. It's called Secession on Trial. And I'm actually reading through that book right now. And that book basically lays out what the defense plan was for Jefferson Davis. And just a little nugget here, uh, and this is another reason that I say unilateral secession is still perfectly legal. Jefferson Davis was never tried for treason. Hmm. No Confederate officer was, as a matter of fact. Do you know the only Confederate officer who was executed? No. Henry Word. And he was executed because of the bad conditions at Andersonville. <laughs> So, but no, no Confederate officer um, in the military and no Confederate public officer was ever tried for treason. And, and Horace Greeley, a rabid abolitionist from the North, actually headed the movement to get bail posted for Jefferson Davis because they kept delaying his trial and wouldn't give him his day in court. And Horace Greeley, the abolitionist, didn't think it was right for J Jefferson Davis to sit there and rot in federal prison. So he led the movement to get bail posted for him. Jefferson Davis gets out and lives out the remainder of his days. Wow. So a yep. northerner got him out. That's crazy. Man. Yep. Wow. Isn't it crazy how much um, real tolerance they, for, for all that we say <laughs> that that generation was intolerant? Isn't it crazy how much tolerance they had for radically diametrically opposed views? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely right. There was such a respecter of persons, too. You know, the ideas can be changed. The person is who they are, and, and they allowed that. You know, you, you didn't see it devolve to what it has become today uh, by any stretch. No, absolutely. And and now we, we can't even tolerate differences of opinion on, on the weather. So <laughs> it's horrible. It's true. We it have no horrible. capacity for it. Yeah. 
Man, well, Mr. Jeffersonian, so, this has been amazing. And I, I tell you what, I want to encourage everybody to go check out your podcast. And and uh, we'll put those links in the bio section on the uh, podcast so people can uh, connect with those. And we'll put links to your podcast as well uh, in the show notes so that uh, people can connect with you. Um, but man, th- there's a lot here to, to unpack. I think um, I'm going to have some reading to do for sure, which I'm looking forward to. But, uh, man, I want to just say to you, there's an open door anytime you want to come back. And uh, maybe in a, in a couple months, uh, maybe another year or so, we can uh, check back in and we can see what's happening with, uh, you know, the world at large, but in particular with uh, this movement. Uh, it excites me, man. I'm just telling you, I think I think people, I, th- I think for what it is, you know, as a believer, as a Christian, I think God may use the COVID thing to move things around in our country in a way that could be actually helpful in the long run. I hope. No, I, I sincerely hope. And uh, Turner, thank you again so much for having me on. Uh, hey, don't, don't be a stranger. I, I don't, are you, are you on me? We yet? No, I'm going to go, I'm going to go join. I need to get on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Send me a friend request. I'll get you added in my group. Um, and I would like to, to read Thomas Jefferson's quote on this, and this will actually be my last thing, but I, I want to leave everybody with this thought, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. And again, this is from his first inaugural address, and he says here, If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. Awesome. So remember that. Remember that Jefferson himself said, it's fine. If you want to leave, leave. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, on that note, we'll leave it at that. Cause that is a great, that's a great send off for us here, man. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. I hope you have a great evening. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the All Out War podcast today. If you had a blast, then we'd love to have you back for another episode. So please subscribe and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram at All Out War Podcast or on Twitter at AOWCast. These episodes are also available on YouTube unless they contain a little too much truth. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time.